0: so no, I'm, I'm going gonna to take you <laughs> come on come on oh yeah. that'll work fine that will we'll see <laughs> all right if you have your bible go ahead and turn to james chapter 3 James chapter 3. I'm filling in for David Pullman today because he is under the weather in the high school class. If you're in high school, you can stay in here. We're going to be covering James chapter 3. There won't be a PowerPoint, so you'll just have to go old school and use your Bible, and that'll that'll do. In the high school class, we're doing James this quarter as well, and we just so happened to be at James chapter 3, so it all worked out. Alright, James chapter 3, and David sent me some stuff, and he also sent me a few questions, and I will incorporate some of that as well. And we had a great challenging lesson this morning on the tongue. I thought Neil did a great job and challenged every one of us in our speech from Proverbs 15 and how we can use our tongue, and we're going to deal more with that specifically in James 3. The book of James is sometimes described as the book of practical religion. You know, it's called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it just deals with our everyday lives and how we're to live before God, and in chapter 3 specifically, James deals with the tongue. I don't know how far we'll get today, but in the first 12 verses, James deals with our use of the tongue, and then in verses 13 down through 18, He deals with what's true wisdom. And he talks about the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. And so we've all heard this childhood slogan. If I start it, I guess everybody in here could finish it. Sticks and stones may what? Break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a great slogan to teach children not to be overly sensitive and not to let everything get to them. But it's also a false slogan, right? Because there's a sense in which words do pack power and they they cause problems. Words can be used for good. God created the world with his words. Genesis one over and over again, says that God said and it was so. Psalm thirty three six says he commanded and it was done. He spoke and it stood fast. And you might say, well, those are God's words. Of course, those words are powerful, but so are our words. You think about Romans 10, as Neil mentioned at the end and confessing with the mouth that Jesus is the son of God. Or the words that were used to get Jesus crucified. Eventually with Pilate, what it was, was Jesus was heckled by the people. They kept crying out over and over again. In Matthew 27, 20 through 24, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate knew he was innocent. His wife testified to the same. He examined Jesus. Jesus had done nothing wrong. It was the words of the people. They wore Pilate down. And eventually he did the ceremonial washing of his hands and crucified Jesus. Why? Because of words. And we could say different things about our own lives and words that cause problems. The psalms speak of the wicked who sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their bitter words like arrows. It says the foolish are taken by the words of their mouth. Proverbs six and verse two. The tongue is sharp as a serpent. And under their lips is the venom of ass. Psalm 140 and verse three. So when we think about James chapter three and we think about the tongue, Just appreciate how much power it has. Neil talked about how to tame it and our thoughts and our temper. But James is going to deal with the problem, the universal nature of it and how we can address it. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to James. Before we get to James three, what I also want to do is show you this isn't the first time James addresses this. It's really a theme throughout his letter. In every chapter in the book of James, he says something about the tongue and maybe the misuse of it and how we can abuse it. Let me show you a few of these. Go to James one and notice verse 19. In James 1:19, he gives the caution. And before he starts talking about how we receive the word, he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to be wrathful or angry because the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. He says, be slow to speak. But notice chapter one and verse 26 In chapter 1:26, He says, if any man among you seems to be religious and doesn't bridle or control his tongue, he deceives his own heart and his religion is vain. Now, think about verse 26 before we move on. What would you have to do to seem to be religious? If any man among you seems to be religious, what are some things that might be true of this person? Comes to church, check. The way we conduct our lives. This would be a godly person, or at least it would appear to be. What if this person knew the Bible really, really well? Gave a lot of money. Very hospitable and benevolent. James says, you seem to be religious. If any among you appears to be religious... But one thing can disqualify that. And what is it in verse 26? It's the way we use our tongue. Look at James chapter 2. He speaks about the misuse of the tongue when you talk about the way that you treat the poor man. Look at verse three, James chapter two and verse three. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions of yourself and become judges of evil thoughts? Somebody says the problem in James two, one through 13 is partiality. Yes, but it's worked out, at least in James account, by what we say. The things that we say with our mouths drop down to James chapter two and notice notice verse 14 down through 16. And James is talking about faith and works, but he doesn't finish the conversation before mentioning how our tongues play into this. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? And then he goes through this example of professing. But what's the problem? The way they use their speech, they say they have faith, but they don't really have it. Go to chapter four. Since we'll be in chapter three, we won't make mention of it. But go to James chapter four and notice in verse three, using our tongue, maybe to petition God for corrupt things. In James chapter four and verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then in chapter four, 13 through 17, the misuse of the tongue, which boasts about tomorrow. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make gain or much profit. Yet you don't know about tomorrow. What is your life? It's a vapor or a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Verse 15. For this reason, you should say. And he gives the proper use of the tongue. One more. Go to chapter five and notice in verse 12. James chapter 5 and verse 12, there's the swearing and the promising, but the failure to deliver. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. He zeroes in on it in chapter 3, but it's throughout the entire epistle. James is saying you've got to watch what you say, how you may appear to be religious, but don't follow through. How you may say that you have faith, but you don't produce works. How you might pray for things with your tongue, but use desire it for the wrong reason or profess with your tongue for plans and different agendas without including God. And then in chapter five to swear frivolously without really desiring to do it. And so James says, I want you to control your tongue. All right. Now I think we're ready for James chapter three and we'll start in verse one and then we'll section it off. I believe verse two through six goes together, seven and eight and then nine through twelve. But let's begin with verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. And so in chapter three and verse one, James signals out teachers. He'll include everybody, especially beginning in verse two. But here he starts with those who teach. And there's a strong warning. He says not many should become teachers because they will receive a greater judgment or a greater condemnation. And so the Bible says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians five and verse 10. And we'll give an account for what we've done in our bodies. However, there is a sense in which those who teach based on this verse will be judged with a greater strictness or a greater severity. The old King James, I believe, has a greater condemnation. Newer translations go with stricter judgment. This idea that those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard. Look at Luke 12. Hold your hand in James three and go to Luke 12. I guess after all this talk on the tongue, this is going to be the quietest Bible class in the history of the congregation. Okay. Yeah, Luke twelve, forty seven through forty eight. Jesus says, That servant who knew his master's will, but did not but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. That's the ESV New King James. King James says, beat with many stripes, and then in forty eight, but the one who did not know and did not deserve a beating, he will receive the ESV has a light beating. Again, King James says he'll be beat with few stripes. So there's this idea that if you're in a position of authority, Jesus says in Luke 12, if you know your master's will and you fail to comply with it, you're going to be beat with many stripes or a severe beating. But if you didn't know your master's will, there's still punishment, but there's going to be a light beating or a few stripes. Going back to James 3, James says, if you're a teacher, you're going to have a greater responsibility or greater condemnation. Why would teachers receive a stricter judgment? It should be noted, James is not trying to get fewer people to teach, right? The the church always needs people to teach and to serve. But why would teachers, going back to James 3 and verse 1, why would teachers receive what James calls a stricter judgment? Hypocrisy? Yeah, there probably would be some hypocrisy involved. If you teach, Jesus said about the Pharisees, you remember in Matthew 23, he told his disciples, whatever they tell you to do, Obey them because they sit in Moses seat, but don't do after their works because they say and they don't practice. There was this hypocrisy. They would say things, but they wouldn't follow through. Why else would teachers receive a stricter judgment? Yeah, there could be many people led astray by their false teaching and what they say with their mouths. Romans 16, Paul talks about in verse 17 and 18, false teachers with simple words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple so they might lead people astray. Now, think about one more thing. Their influence. influence. Yeah, people are going to follow them because of their influence. The authority they have, people are going to listen to what they say. Think about one more thing, though. In the context of James three, what's the overall theme in James three? The use of the what? The tongue. What is the teacher's tool of choice? The tongue. And so James is about to say so many things that challenge us about the way we use our speech, and then he speaks to people who use their tongue for a living, and he says, Be very careful. Because you are going to have to use it. He's going to say in seven and eight, the tongue's like a wild animal that can't be controlled. But if you're a teacher, a preacher, a Bible class teacher on any level you teach and have influence, especially in the church, James is saying in chapter three, you won't be able to get away with silence. That's not really that's one of the ways to tame the tongue. But that's not ultimately what God desires as much as he desires that we cultivate discipline and self-control. And if you teach, you have no other choice. You're going to have to use it. But be careful, James says, because you will be judged teachers in the first century would sometimes be judged based on their cleverness of speech. And that's why Paul says in first Corinthians two, I didn't come to you with cleverness of speech, but he came in power and wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. And so many people wanted to teach and they probably were ready and excited. And James is saying, stop rushing to teach all of you. This isn't something you should just jump in frivolously. And you might think of some reasons why people would be attracted to teaching. Right? You get to be up, right? A lot. You get to stand up. You get to have a mic. You get to be in front of the people. And people might be drawn to that. And James is saying, be careful what you desire because it comes with a heavy, a heavy burden as well. Alright? Why would it be important for James to emphasize counting the cost for those desiring to teach? Why would he need to emphasize this idea that there's going to be a stricter judgment? We talked about why there would be influence, false teaching and some of those things. Why would he need to emphasize this part about the stricter judgment? Another way to say this is James is telling them, count the cost if you desire to teach. Why would he emphasize that? Okay, make you study to show yourself approved. Make sure you know what you're talking about before you get up to do it. Yep, that's right. So first Timothy 416, Paul tells Timothy, pay attention to yourself and to those that hear you, because in doing it, you'll save yourself and those that hear you. But there's something else in James three and verse one about be careful not to teach everybody because you'll receive a stricter judgment. Why would he say count the cost if you're going to be a teacher? Is everybody in the church a teacher? Everybody go like this. No, right. Paul says as much in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians, everybody doesn't want to. Everybody can't and everybody shouldn't. God's given a variety of gifts to people to do various things. And James is saying you think about temper and what Neil talked about. Some people just they just can't control their temper. And if you teach and if you preach or in any of the, in those areas you serve, you're going to be tested in those areas. And it just may not be well for you to do so. And so count the cost so that you don't disqualify yourself. You can go to heaven. Without preaching or teaching, you can be a faithful Christian and serve in many other avenues. But if you want to do that, then you need to make sure you count the cost before you do it. It's interesting the contrast in Hebrews 5. They won't teach. There's a group of folks that won't teach. And the Hebrew writer says, by now, you should already be teachers. And now James is saying, let's balance that because everybody shouldn't do it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so we're all going to teach in different avenues and different ways. That's right. That's a good point. So there'll be mothers at home. There'll be our example. There may be grandchildren and children. So everybody is a teacher in that sense. But in the sense that James is strictly speaking of, you think about the congregational setup, that would be men in the public arena, but also women teaching children and teaching other women, Titus 2, 2 through 5. And so there's some of that. There's a sense in which we're all teachers. But there's also a sense in which we're all not because James says not many of you should become teachers. So he wouldn't be saying, don't be a mom or a dad or something like that. But in the general sense, that's correct. We're all going to teach and there still will be a judgment along with that. But in the public arena or in the public sphere of the congregation, James is saying, make sure that you count the cost before you do it. All right. Let's go to James chapter three and read verses two through six. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle or control his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life. And it is set on fire by hell. So James begins by saying in verse one, let not many of you become teachers. And then in verse two, he just states this matter of factly. If you look at verse two, how it begins. We all stumble in many ways. And so James is writing to Christians and he's saying, what? What does this mean? We all stumble in many ways. We all make mistakes. We're all sinners. sinners. Yeah, even after obeying the gospel, we still have sin problems, every one of us. If you think about passages in the Bible that say not only are we sinners, but if we deny the fact that we're sinners, that's a sin in and of itself. 1 John 1 and verse 8, 1 John 1 and verse 10, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. We all stumble. And then he says in various ways, his point will eventually be we all stumble in various ways. But the one we all have in common is the tongue. But it's important first to see none of us are perfect. We all have problems. We all struggle and we sin in various ways. Yeah. First John one seven. Right. So. Yeah. As long as we walk in the light, we don't have to be perfect. The blood will continue to cleanse us. But it is important to drive home this reality first. We do stumble in many ways. Why do you think it's important that the New Testament continues to emphasize that we stumble even after our baptism? Why do you think it's important to continue to drive home this point while there is continual cleansing? And there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Why do you think James and John and even Paul and others will say, hey, you haven't arrived. You're not perfect. There's more work for you to do. Why do you think that's important for us to think about, especially with use concerning the tongue, but just in general in our Christian lives, that we need to be reminded, hey, none of us, preachers, elders, nobody is perfect. What? That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so sometimes if we're struggling, we might think it's just us. We're the only ones. But when you read the New Testament, notice John doesn't say, hey, you all still have sin. He says, if we say we have no sin, he includes himself. Look at James, James 3 and verse 2. For we all stumble. James isn't in this sort of instructor posture saying, hey, you guys out there still have problems. James says we all stumble more than that in many ways. Right. There are many ways we stumble. And you think about Paul. Paul says, I haven't already arrived. I'm not perfect, but I'm chasing after it so that I can lay hold of it. Philippians three, 12 through 14. And so both of those comments are true. Really all three of them. One, we have to strive to walk in the light, but also so we don't give up. But we also need to take heed to ourselves. By realizing that we all struggle and that we all still have something to work on, it helps us to administer grace to other people. You know, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you use, it'll be used on you. And so when you think about other people's weaknesses, you need to remember, we all stumble in various ways. But the commonality in our struggle in verse 2 is, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man and he's able to control his whole body and so who wants to sign up for this one? Who's handled this? Yeah, it's kind of what I estimated. Nobody, right? He says if any man can control the tongue, he's a perfect <coughs> or a complete man. And he's able also to control his whole body. And this is ultimately what set Jesus apart from the rest of humanity. There are a lot of things, obviously. He's the son of God. He's sinless. But have you ever thought about the fact that when the Bible says that Jesus never committed a sin, Hebrews 4.15, he never lied. He never lust. He never murdered anybody. Yes, but he controlled his speech every single day. Luke 11:53 53 says there was an occasion when the Pharisees, they had had enough of his teaching and they start antagonizing him, trying to get him to say something sort of off the cuff. He never said one word wrong. He never lost his temper one day and lashed out at the disciples and said, oh, I'm sorry about that. He never did it. Not one day. When they started beating him and mocking him, if you've ever been under any kind of pressure and people are lying on you and saying things about you that you know aren't true, how difficult is it even in those moments to retain your self-control and to not respond in kind? He never did it so much so that Pilate marveled at his silence. What set Jesus apart was his sinless perfection, but he controlled the tongue. He mastered the tongue. And he never said anything out of turn or that he shouldn't have. And so the tongue is a member that we struggle to control. If we can control it, we can control our whole body. James uses two of the largest objects in the known Mediterranean world in verses 3 and 4 to make his point. He talks first about a horse, and then he mentions a ship. He says a horse is controlled by the bridle or the bit that's placed in its mouth. And though it's a large animal with extraordinary power, guess what happens? It's controlled. And then he talks about a ship and the ships in the first century were steered by a very small rudder or a paddle. This same word is used in Acts 27 and verse 40 for the ship that Paul was on with those two hundred and seventy six other guys on his way to Rome. And that same word is used. But the tongue is a little member, but it can still boast of great things and do great damage. It has great power over the human body. We all stumble in many ways. There are sins I've committed. You probably have never thought about and vice versa. But there is one area where everybody in the world stands on level ground. Romans 3.23 says, all have what? And you could add to that, all have sinned with the tongue. There are things that people have done. You, you look at it on the news, you see it in life, and you say, why would anybody ever? I can't imagine somebody doing that. But not when it comes to James 3. Everybody has fallen short with the tongue. And James says, this is where we all stand on level ground. And realizing that just because it's a little member, don't underestimate its power. The tongue often has an initial part to play in so many sins and crimes. Can you think of any sins and crimes that initially start with the tongue? Can you think of many of the misuses of the tongue and the way the tongue can be used to cause damage? What are some of the ways that the tongue can be used in our lives to cause damage or in the lives of others? Gossip. Gossip. Lying. Yeah, we can tell lies on other people. Gossip. The Bible talks about gossip in Romans 129, and it says that sin, among others, is part of the reason the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the Gentiles or on the unbelieving world. But also lying. We can say things that aren't true. What else? Cut somebody down. Just cut somebody down. That's pretty easy to do, isn't it? You know what's funny about the use of our tongues? When I say something about you, it's a pretty small thing, right? But if you hear that somebody else says something about you, then what? That's a pretty big deal. Why would they say that about me? But we can cut people down with our tongues. We can say things about people that we shouldn't say. We can slander them. That's what the Bible calls it. In Leviticus 19, 16 through 18, Moses said, you will not go up and down as a talebearer among the people. Our tongues can be used to cut people down. What else can we do with our tongues? Okay, yeah, we can share information that's not true. Dwight? Which brings up a question. Do we know people's motives? We can assume, we can guess, but we don't really know. 1 Corinthians 2 says you don't know what's in people unless they tell you. And sometimes we can do damage to people by slandering them, by assigning things to their motives. Um, Ronnie and then back to the Dwight. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to be silent. And whenever we figure out that time, we'll be the perfect man that James talks about in James chapter 3 and verse 2. Dwight? Yeah. It is. It is very dangerous. Here are a few others I thought about. What about boasting? The Bible talks about boasting and it includes it. Go to 2 Timothy 3. Just notice this. We won't flip to all of these, but I think this one's interesting because we may not think of bragging as really a, <coughs> a misuse of the tongue, but it is. And it's also included in the list of sins that are a time when God's people are going to be knowing that we're in the last dispensation of the last days. Second Timothy three one says, understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, recklessness, swollen with conceit, lovers of God, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And it talks about denying its power and turning away. So in verse two, there's a word that can be translated as boasting or abusive or arrogant talk. All of that's concealed. In, and we think about these other ones. We could point those out pretty good. But boasting, Galatians five twenty six, is contrary to the spirit. I know sometimes we're very proud of ourselves. Right. One man says some people don't need an introduction. They just need a conclusion. Right. <laughs> boasting is a misuse of the tongue. Rash words. I think that's part of what Roger was saying. We can say things and we can cut people down, gossip. And then there's just filthy talk. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And Neil talked about that. What about criticism? We know everything that everybody else needs to do to just fix their lives. If we just had the remote control of their lives for a few days, we could fix them, their marriages, their families. But as Dwight mentioned in James 4.11 and 12, James says, there is one boss in Christianity. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy Who are we to judge another? Now, we can help, and there is a time to correct, and I'm not saying any of that's not true. The Bible says that. But we should be slow to do those things because guess who needs the most work in our lives? We do ourselves. There are harsh words, Proverbs 15, verse 1. What about this one? Jesting. What does it mean to jest? Joking sarcasm I've seen people with these shirts on I'm fluent in sarcasm like it's a fruit of the spirit you know yeah um, it can get you in trouble now the Bible is all for good humor Proverbs 17 says a merry heart does good like a medicine but we should be careful because in Ephesians 5 and verse 4 Paul says there is what's called crude jesting and joking and it should be not named once among God's people But instead, the giving of thanks. We can say a lot of things and say, well, I'm just joking. I I don't mean anything by it. But much truth is said in jest. Sometimes we cloak our sarcasm and our real thoughts about people as if we're just (laughs) just joking. But God knows. And then there are idle words. Neil mentioned this verse, but turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, and notice verse 34 down through 37. And as you turn there, just think about this occasion. Jesus has healed a demon-possessed man. And they accuse him of blaspheming or being able to do it by the power of Beelzebub, the power of demons. The Pharisees do. And Jesus says in verse 36, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Some translations have every idle word that they'll speak for by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Now, why did Jesus say this? He had just cast the demon out of a man. And the Pharisees, they just throw this out there. Well. The only reason why he's able to do that is by the power of Beelzebub. How many times have you done that? How many times have we done that? He says, every idle word we will speak. Oh, that's such a nice family. Yeah, but I remember them back when. Oh, don't she married him for his money. We just say things carelessly. And Jesus says, guess what's happening? Your words are sprinting ahead of you. And when you get to the line of judgment, they'll just be waiting there to greet you. Now, if we're God's people, that either makes us smile or makes us cringe. It's already been mentioned, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, we will have continual cleansing, but we do need to weigh our words because he says every idle word. What about the careless things we just say? Sometimes just to ourselves or to our spouses or to our friends, we think no one else hears it, but God does. And Jesus says you won't get away with one of them. Every idle word. They just threw this out into the air. Well, he's not really spiritual. He just does this by the power of demons. And Jesus says, what did you say? You know, you can't get away with just saying things like that. Those words are going to meet you at the judgment. And so will ours. Yeah, that's right. Jesus says that in verse thirty-four. If you're still in Matthew twelve, yeah, that's right. We don't have time for all of these, but I'll just give you a few more if you're taking notes on these. We can take the Lord's name in vain. That was a capital offense in the Old Testament. Proverbs 20, ex- Exodus 20 and verse 7. Um, there's flattery. We can try to praise people but not really be sincere. Proverbs 26 and verse 28. There's blasphemy, Mark 7, 20 through 23. And so we should be careful with our words. Now let's go to James 3 and notice verse 7 down through verse 8 and what James says about taming the tongue. Before we read verse seven and verse eight, I have a question. What do you think James means in verse six when he says the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and it is set on fire. It sets on fire the entire course of life. And then he says it is set on fire by hell. What do you think that means? Because, you know, everybody, if we know any verse in Revelation, we know Revelation twenty one eight. Right. All liars will have their place where? And the lake of fire. Right. And so people talk about that. What does James mean that the tongue is set on fire by hell? That's what I was thinking, Derek. We are more like the devil when we misuse our tongue than at any other time. What's the first thing he does that we read about in Scripture? He lies. He deceives. Genesis three, one through six. He's the father of lies. John 8:44. The tongue is set on fire by hell. We align ourselves with hell and the devil when we misuse our tongue. And so what do we do about it? Verse seven and eight. James says every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so it's already been mentioned. We can go to the zoo. You never really see any humans in those cages, do you? You go to the aquarium, I guess you can swim <coughs> with the sharks if you want, but the humans are in control. But the tongue is a wild animal that can't be controlled. Or at least we, we haven't figured out how to do it yet. This is what Jewish rabbis would say about the tongue. God said to the tongue, the rest of the members of the body stand straight up, but you will be lying down. They are external, but you are internal. Nor is that enough. I have built two walls around you, the one bone and the other flesh. And yet like a wild animal. He just bursts out of the cage, doesn't he? And we struggle to control the tongue. There were two mentioned in the lesson this morning. That is getting our hearts under control and watching our tempers. What are some of the other practical ways that we can tame our tongues? Think before we speak. Yep, that's right. Feel the heart with good godly things. That's right. What about these? Here's a few. We've got five minutes left. What if we said less? Proverbs 10:19 says, he that keeps his mouth, he says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he that refrains his lips is wise. That means the more you talk, the more I talk, the more of a possibility that sin will eventually creep up. Remember, God is watching. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, but his ears are attentive to our prayers. First Peter <laughs> 3 and verse 12 Ask yourself these important questions before you speak. Number one, is it necessary? Number two, is it true? Number three, is it kind? Number four, is it helpful? And then number five, does it edify? Sometimes we say, well, I'm just telling the truth, and I would say this in front of them, but that doesn't mean you should say it at all. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Does it build up? You know most people can get along in life without the things we say. We think people just have to hear from us. They don't. Try to respond. Try not to respond immediately when you are angry. Don't give place to the devil. Look at Proverbs twenty nine eleven. Proverbs twenty nine eleven. Solomon says a fool gives full vent to his spirit, (coughs) but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool utters all his mind, but a wise man keeps some of it back afterwards. Try not to respond immediately to things when you're angry. Even if you have to say to somebody, you know what? I'm too mad to talk about this right now. Can you just give me a minute? I'd rather not talk about this right now. It'd be good for you and me if I just take a minute. That might help us with our speech. Love the truth. Proverbs 23, verse 23. That might keep us from lying. Remember how you want to be treated. Matthew 7 and verse 12. Pray to God every day to help you to watch your speech. The psalmist says, Set a watch, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep the doors of my lips. Psalm 141 and verse 3. Seasoning our tongues before soiling them. Colossians 4 and verse 6. He says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Ask yourself, would Jesus talk to this person like this or talk about them like this? Philippians 2 and verse 5. Somebody says we should talk about people in their face the way we talk about them behind their backs, and that would help us. Mm, We've got five minutes left, but just keep in mind what we're talking about with our speech, especially in our day and age, is also true about emailing, texting and various other devices. We've sort of changed in our communication. Somebody says, well, I got my speech under control, but these two thumbs are wicked. Right. (laughs) Listen, it applies to those things as well. Right. How we use our speech. I've seen people with technological courage text things, post things. they would never say these kind of things to people's face. They just wouldn't. But behind the screen, they transform. And James is saying, I want you to have consistent speech. Verses 9 through 12 talk about a warning against the hypocritical use of the tongue. And this is probably the most challenging part of what James says about our speech. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things should not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James says we can do two things with our tongue. We can bless and we can curse. And one of those is great and one of those is not. We sing praises to God. And we can use the same instrument to curse and tear down people made in his own image. Remember, how we treat people is how we treat God. God made people in his own image. We've never seen God. First, John says, and God says, you can tell me you love me all day, but I want to see how you treat my property, how you treat my stuff, how you treat people that God calls the apple of his eye." Psalm 17 and verse eight. And that's how we ultimately treat God. So how are you doing with that? How am I doing with that? With the things that we say? You should be thinking about this and I'll, I'll think about it for me. Why is it sometimes hard for you to control your tongue? If we monitor ourselves, we, we often live in patterns. What are the times when I struggle to control my tongue the most? What are the things that irritate me, that get me to fly off the handle? When we figure those things out, then we got to train our hearts to respond accordingly in those situations. So we don't always say, oh, that just sprung up on me or I just lost control. That will happen. But the Bible says we can get those things under control. If you think about people in first century Palestine, they find this fresh spring of water. How many times out of 100 do they think that that spring is going to bring forth fresh water? How many times is this tree going to produce out of 100 the same type of fruit? James is saying our speech should have that same consistency. People should be able to come to us and expect on a day-to-day basis they're not perfect, they're not sinless, but their speech is consistent. You don't want to walk up on someone and say, well, I don't know what we're going to get today. I don't know if he's had his coffee yet. I don't know what she's going to be thinking about today. There needs to be a consistency about our speech. Because we we ultimately belong to God. Well, thanks for a good Bible class. Thanks for the participation. And let's do what we can to tame the tongue.